So at our church, we take time to, in October to celebrate the greatest revival God has sent to us since the days of the apostles in the 16th century Reformation. Uh, it's called the Protestant Reformation, 16th centuries, the 1500s. And the character that most immediately comes to mind when you think of the Reformation is Luther. And if when Luther comes to mind, I think the, the part of his life that uh, comes to mind is maybe the nailing of the 95 Theses on the door of the church, but also the um, speech he gives at the Diet of Worms. This is the 500th anniversary of the Diet of, Vor, uh, of Worms that happened in 1521. And the reason why I, we might think of that is because it's been immortalized in so many movies. Um, the most recent one, uh, Voldemort's brother plays uh, Luther, uh, one of the Finney's uh, uh, brothers. And, and the, the, the speech that we remember is the conclusion of his speech on the second day of the Diet of Worms, where he says, unless... I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they often err and contradict themselves. I am bound by the scriptures. I have quoted, and my conscience captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help. Amen. And with everything else in history, now it's being contested whether Luther said this or not, but there's overwhelming evidence that he did say that. As, but, but, as, by the way, the hymn we sent, sang the, the, this morning, A Mighty Fortress, was likely written as he's writing to the Diet of Worms, where he thought he was going to lose his, his life. So when he says, the body they may kill, he wasn't trying to think of some sort of fictitious or hypothetical situation. That's what he thought was going to happen to him as he stood for the doctrines of the scriptures. Uh, but in God's providence, as you know, um, he was protected by Frederick the Elector, and he was kidnapped by his friend and spent a couple of years or a year or so at the, uh, the castle being protected there. And he was one of the... He eventually just died of old age or, or of natural causes, uh, Luther did. But as we think of the 16th century and we think of Luther, it's important for us to remember that Luther was not alone in this endeavor. He had, other, he had those who paved the way for him, men like John Wycliffe, the first one to your left, or John Huss in the middle of the picture who came before Wycliffe in the 14th and 15th century. Men like John Calvin who followed him. Uh, these men built upon Luther's work. Uh, John Calvin was the last one to your right, and men like Eric Zwingli, the first one with the green background, uh, men like Johannes Oikolampadius, the guy in the middle, and John Knox, the guy to the right. These are all men who are used by God in the, um, as God is bringing this reformation, this revival, this purifying um, season in the life of the church. By the way, all these five guys, that I, these six guys that I just put up, we have had lessons on them through our years of studying the, the Reformation. And these reformers were in strong agreement about the basic teachings from which flowed a marvelous number of doctrine, uh, biblical doctrine in the 16th century. They were not in agreement on everything. Luther was the most uh, bombastic of them all. Uh, and he, he had a tendency to 
only want to have fellowship with people who agreed with him 100%. So his, his circle of fellowship was not very big in that sense. Uh, but they, they, they were in very, very great agreement. Now this year, for the four men we're going to be studying, we want to demonstrate that the 16th century reformers did not come up with what they taught on their own. They did not come up with a, brand, a bunch of novel ideas that the church had never seen before. Our Protestants' forefathers were very careful to connect their beliefs with the stream of beliefs that the church had held all the way back to the apostles. It was very important to them to demonstrate that they are not reinventing things. They were for the reform of the church, the going back to uh, its roots. Uh, the, uh, the, the theme that became eventually the theme of the, the Protestants is reformed and always reforming. That is, always going back to the scriptures to make sure that what we're doing is according to the scriptures. Now, it would be impossible for four of us in the space of a month um, look at every single reformer and all the influences that were upon them. So we're not going to attempt to do that because that would be doctoral level sort of... Uh, work, and that's not what we're going to be doing here. We're going to pick up one reformer, John Calvin, and we're picking him up because he's the one that had the most influence, long-term influence, in Western thinking in general. Not just theological thinking, but Western thinking in general. And then how do we decide which influences we're going to look? Well, we just look at what are the four men that he quotes the most. And we made an assumption that Quoting the most also means the most influence on him. So there might be a false assumption, but that's the assumption we made. And we came out with these four men that we're going to be looking at this, this month and the first weekend of uh, November. The first one is Quintus Tertullian. Now, it's a great name for your kids, if you want to name Tertullian uh, there. Uh, he, he flourished. He, he was born in... Uh, 155 and died somewhere between 220 and 240. So you can see there's an early church father in the uh, second and third centuries. Then, Lord willing, we're going to look at John Chrysostom, uh, born in 347 to 407. Now, when the, the, the following men come and talk about their, their guy, they might have different dates because there's always debate on the birth and death of those guys because they're not super worried about recording that. You know. Uh, but so we're approximating dates here. And Lord William Elder Hoy is going to Andrew Hoy is going to talk about John Chrysostom there. And just off the bat, notice the difference between the, the renditions. Of course, there's no pictures, like no photographs of these men. Uh, that's before photo- photography had been invented. So these are paintings. But you see the difference between the, the two uh, um, attributions of them. And there's significance on that because one, the one on your left, Tertullian, is a Latin father. And the one on the right is a Greek father. And things are portrayed differently in the, the two sides of the church. Then Lord Willing, Isaiah Couch, is going to talk about, and you know, we had the new guy, so we give the most difficult one to him just to see how he does because he's going to be talking about Aurelius Augustine. Uh, and the most difficult because it's the one of the greatest influence in the history of Western thinking. And also the greatest amount of written materials of all these people that we're going to be looking at. Uh, 
3.54 to about 4.30 will be his time. And then the last one is Bernard of Clairvaux. And Lord willing, Nick Anderson is going to talk about it. Now, he's a medieval scholar. So here we're going out of the early church into the medieval church. And it, this shows the connection with the medieval church. So that we're seeing a continuation here of all the influences on the reformers. So that's the plan for the next uh, few weeks to be looking at um, these, um, these men who were of great impact on John Calvin and thus on us. Mr. Newton. Could you say again the second fellow? John Chrysostom. Now, a lot of these guys, that's not their real name. There's a nickname. His name was John, but Chrysostom is a, it's a nickname. He was a great preacher, so that's the golden, golden tongue or the golden mouth. All right, so let's start with Tertullian. Quintus Tertullian. There is very little known, and uh, uh, we don't know him a lot, right? Some of you took an early church history class with me last year, and you've learned a little bit by Tertullian at that point. I only took that class, but not very much. It's not the guy that, oh, let me think of a, a hero in, of the faith, and you think of him. That's not usually how that goes. And some of it has to do with the bad press that he has received, uh, especially in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, with some reason, no, not, none of these guys are perfect. Tertullian is certainly not perfect. Uh, he's considered a heretic in the Roman Catholic Church, um, which has pros and cons to be declared a, a heretic by the Roman Catholic church. He is the only one of these four guys that's not considered a saint in the Roman Catholic uh, tradition. Uh, but he remains a towering figure whose importance in the church really stands on par with uh, Augustine, with Luther, and Calvin. Even today, we're just not aware of how much Tertullian has influenced the way we think and believe today. Now, most of, much of his life, uh, the details of his life have been lost to a dusty past. We only have some details of his life. We have more about his teaching. We know he was a son of a Roman centurion, and he was from Carthage. Does anybody know where Carthage was? It's North Africa, yes. Uh, modern day, the birth of the Arab Spring. Tunisia, modern-day modern day Tunisia. You can see a map on your screen with Carthage uh, there. So you can see very close to Rome, to Italy, uh, across the Mediterranean. Do you know anything exciting about Carthage? What is that? Hannibal. Hannibal. Not Lecter from the movie, but <laughs> Hannibal, the great general that marched upon... Um, Rome with an army of elephants just to find out the elephants don't like the Alps. And uh, <laughs> that was a, a big issue. And they, they fought, Rome and Carthage fought in what became known as the Punic Wars. Now, Punic doesn't mean that they were tiny. That was a Latin word for African or the language that they um, Spoke uh, in English, that word would be the word barber, Berber, as the those that spoke that language. That eventually we got the word barbarian uh, from. It came from that 
language. Augustine's mother, I don't want to steal too much of it, was a, a Berber, likely. Monica was likely a Punic uh, that, uh, from that region. It, it, the evidence is, is that Tertullian, was, though his father was a Roman centurion, he was not a, an Italian. He was a, Northern, a North African. So Tertullian is likely a black man as he ministers uh, in the church. And that's something we have to keep in mind. A lot of our church fathers were not Caucasian. A lot of the beginning of the church is not a... We, we tend to think, oh, Christianity is a Western movement, and these people claim that. It's not. Uh, and it's not a Caucasian movement either, at least not originally. Uh, his father really wanted him to go, to go places in life, so uh, he wanted him... The, 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 the times have changed, but the biggest aspiration was that your child, your son, would go into public service for the empire. Be a state worker was the great aspiration of the second and third centuries. So his father sent him to be trained in jurisprudence and the art of forensic eloquence. All that means that he was being trained to be a trial lawyer. That's what he was supposed, that's what his dad wanted to, to be. And he, he was super smart. All of a sudden, right off the bat, he became the top of his class. He was going to be the greatest lawyer ever till the Lord saved him, which seems to be a bit of a pattern through these, these guys, too. They were going to be lawyers, and the Lord saves them, and then they, they're not going to be lawyers anymore. I don't know if there's anything we can draw from, from that. Um, but he was saved about uh, 180 AD. So you can, born in 55, 155, saved in 180 tells us he was saved about age 25. Um, and he doesn't speak a lot of his conversions. You know, Luther, I don't think he goes one page without feeling two about his conversion. Uh, he talks about how the Lord saved him often. Calvin doesn't, Luther does, Tertullian doesn't either. Augustine talks a lot about his conversion. So he goes back and forth there. He just tells us it was sudden. It was not a something that the Lord started working his heart slowly. It was one day he was a pagan, no place for Christianity. Next day he had uh, been redeemed and his worldview mindset completely miraculously changed and the twinkling of an eye uh, led him to say that Christians are not born, they're made. What he, they meant that is that, you know, it's not a, in his experience, not a slow process. It's just... Like, like that. And different people have different experiences in that way. Now, the church in the second and third centuries had spread throughout the Roman Empire. This is a map of where... Uh, oof. There's some... Can you see the green from back there? So, can, the green is where the church is concentrated. So you can see, kind of surrounded by the third century, so the 200s, is surrounding the entire Mediterranean world. That's, that's the known world, pretty much, there. There's evidence of also being all the way to Persia and to India, but for our, just looking at this part of uh, uh, the world. So the church is all over the world, all over the known world, the Roman Empire, at least. And it was divided geographically and linguistically in two parts. The Eastern Church, which you know, would be somewhat to the right of your map, uh, in, uh, which included Palestine, Syria, Asia Minor, Greece, and Egypt, was a, a Greek church. It spoke Greek and was highly influenced by Greek thinking. Okay? 
the Western church, that would be Italy, Spain, Gaul. Now, what's modern-day Gaul? France, yes. Gaul, um, North Africa. Now, it's interesting that even though today we think of Egypt and North Africa, in the ancient world, Egypt was not North Africa. Egypt was Egypt by itself. And then you had North Africa. These were Latin-speaking folks, the Latin-speaking church, and it was under the influence of the practical Roman mind with its emphasis in law. It's important to think about that because then the pastors that come, the theologians that come from these different sides are going to argue things differently. And they're going to be facing different issues. When you compare what Tertullian did to what Chrysostom did, it's a completely different uh, starting foundation because you're dealing with different mindsets there as well. Are you with me so far? Any, any questions? All right, have, so if... Tertullian is in North Africa. What segment of the church does he belong to? The Western church or the Eastern church? Western church, right? North Africa is part of the Western church, Latin-speaking church. Augustine is also a Latin father. He, uh, he really, really struggled learning Greek. Therefore, the Eastern church really discredited him. Do you think, now if you have the saying today, if you ain't Dutch, you ain't, you ain't much, right? Well, for the Eastern Church, if you didn't speak Greek, you don't have a hearing with us here. So Tertullian belonged to the Western Church, and Christianity had come to North Africa early on. Uh, some say from Italy, and they say that just because of the proximity there, remember on the map. And, but also, if you remember, there are several people who heard the gospel in the day of Pentecost, and some of them were from... Um, North Africa, so they may have taken the, them there. Ethiopia is not considered North Africa, by the way. So you can think, oh, the eunuch in Acts chapter 8 took the gospel of North Africa. That's not really considered. And that's the most ancient Christian church in the world, is the Ethiopian church uh, to this day. But So Christianity came early to North Africa. As a matter of fact, North Africa became the center of theological Christianity in the West. Not Italy, not um, the other parts of the empire, but North Africa. By the, by the time the Tertullian comes around, there is at least 90 pastors that were laboring in and around Carthage. There's a high density of Christianity in Carthage. Tertullian tend to speak big. I never ever met you know, pastors who exaggerate about things. Well, Tertullian was a bit of that. And he, um, in writing a, a, to the pagans of Carthage, he says this. He says, if we wanted to act not simply as secret avengers, but as open enemies, what effective opposition could be offered us? Was that saying, hey, we're so many that if you really wanted to beat you up, you had no chance. He says, we are but of, we are but of yesterday, and yet we have filled all the places that belong to you, cities, islands, forts, towns, exchanges, the military camps themselves, tribes, town councils, the palace, the senate, the marketplace. We have left you nothing but your temples. Bit of an exaggeration. It's not, uh, Christianity still a very, was a very small minority in the empire by this time. There's never been a time in the history of the world where Christianity has been a majority uh, of the population religion. Uh, <clears throat> and, and, you know, to, pro to prove the point that Tertullian is exaggerating, the church in North Africa experienced great 
persecution because it was outnumbered and always faced persecution. That the point that Tertullian said that the, the blood is the seed, which eventually became the famous quote by him, which was quite not, wasn't quite said that way, the quote that says, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Well, he said something similar to that in response to all the persecution and all the death that was going on in uh, North Africa. Um, Tertullian had a temper issue as well. Um, um, in an angry defense of the Christians, Tertullian charged the empire with unjust hatred against Christianity. So he was right in what he was doing, but he was a bit angry when he did that, and he said this. He said, The term conspiracy should not be applied to us, but rather to those who plot to foment hatred against decent and worthy people, those who shout for the blood of the innocent and plead for sooth in justification of their hatred, the foolish execute, ex excuse that the Christians are to be blamed for every public disaster and every misfortune that befalls the people. If the Tiber rises to the walls, that's a river in Rome, if the Nile fails to rise and flood the fields, if the sky withholds its rain, if there is earthquake or famine or plague, straight away the cry arises, the Christians to the lions. Now, isn't it interesting how that was the beginnings of this era of Christianity? And we seem to be returning to that. That everything that's wrong in society today is, is supposedly because of Christianity. Even though the narrative is not really aware of history, but that's the narrative that everything bad. Why are women oppressed? Because of Christianity. Why is this and that? Because of Christianity. And that's a return to the beginnings, which may be a good thing. Because the church prospered under those conditions. And uh, it might be that the Lord's doing that to purify us and to bring great revival. Any questions on Tertullian so far? All right, so we're going to shift now and try to, try to look at what he actually did as far as work and so on. Uh, from the time of his conversion, he became an unrelenting opponent of every enemy of the church and a defender of the faith. He was a man of great ability surpassed by few in churches in the history of the church. Uh, scholars hold him as one of the most intelligent fathers in all of church history. But as I said, he also had a sharp temper. So, so he had no patience with the pagan or anybody he deemed to be outside of the scope of Orthodox Christianity. And uh, he also had a quick wit and was able to wield a pen with um, um, one author says he, uh, he wield a pen often with bitter and satirical uh, satirical attitude against those who denied the faith so and now let's just put him in context that wasn't just he that did that that was uh, that was how people argue back in the day if you read Luther's tracts things that he wrote you'd be or even his sermons he, you would be um, surprised you know about the things that he would say to to the enemies but also to his own congregation as well uh, 
So he was not afraid to call his enemies anything within the widest possible bounds of decency. <laughs> you know, he'd go right to the edge of, uh, uh, of how he spoke. And he fought hard and long and fiercely in the defense of the faith. So that's to his credit. Within 10 years of his conversion, he became a presbyter in the church. Sorry, I'm back on my slides here. Uh, now, we use the word presbyter to refer to elders today in our context. That's how the Bible uses it. But early on, in the, first, the second and third centuries, that, that word was used differently. They quickly moved away from a biblical form of government to an episcopal form of government. So instead of having the diaconate be those that serve the physical needs of the church and the elders be those that, that serve the spiritual needs of the church, they made all these different terms as a, a hierarchy. So when you're first ordained to the minister, if you're a junior pastor, you are a deacon. And as you progressed in that, you became a presbyter. And then you became an archdeacon. And then you became a bishop and so on. And that monarchical style of bishop, uh, of Episcopalian government, was developed very early. So he became a presbyter, so a pastor, a senior pastor, as we would call, in the church early on. Uh, in his life, which was unusual because he was married. And even by then, even though he's talking about the 200s, there was, still, there was already a certain uh, disapproval to, for leaders in the church to be uh, married. But he was a married man, a happily married man. In two letters of, of great length that he wrote to his wife, he extolled the blessedness of marriage, warned against adultery and immodesty, and produce some writings which are pertinent to our own immorality today. Uh, it would be a great thing for you to read Tertullian on marriage. is very applicable today. He was a fierce enemy of all who attacked Christianity. He was a defender of the faith. Do you know who officially holds that title today? The defender of the faith? Queen Elizabeth II. That's one of her official titles as a monarch of Great Britain. Uh, so, do you know who first held that title? Henry VIII. Do you know who gave it to him? Himself. Yes. So, that's how you get titles. No, you just give it to yourself. Um, all right. Um, he defended the church against uh, paganism and despised pagan philosophy. Uh, he fought against a heretic called Martian. Um, he was an important figure in history because he denied the canon of the scriptures. He denied that the books we have in the New Testament today should be in the New Testament. And the church rallied then to, to, to answer him in those arguments. And he denied that because he, was, he, Martian, was against the material. He thought anything material, physical, is evil. Therefore, Christ could not have had a material body because that would be evil. So he kind of sliced and diced the New Testament to include only the parts that he liked. And uh, Tertullian wrote ferociously against uh, Martian. And he wrote against Gnostics in general, which is this idea that uh, Christianity should be include all the different ways of thinking and Greek philosophy and different philosophies and be very ecumenical that Christianity should be the religion for the everyman, regardless, without distinction, very ecumenical, and Tertullian said, no, you know, the Christian faith was, is very unique among all the religions of the world because it had this origin in the scriptures and the unique claims of Christ. He said all other religions were deviations from the truth, 
So they could not be just assimilated into one religion to become part of Christianity. So he fought against that often. And you can see that that's something that emerges pretty much every generation, an attempt to make Christianity palatable to all peoples without any distinction. And that's not what the Bible teaches. Any questions so far? Another heresy he fought was patripassionism. And that's a, man, that's a, that's a big word. It, was, it, um, it meant, uh, the word itself means the father suffers. Uh, and it has to do with the view of the Trinity. This view said that the father and the son are the same person. Therefore, when the son died on the cross, the father died on the cross. So the father suffered on the cross. So they did not believe in the Trinity. There was the Unitarian uh, heresy there. And he fought against that, um, that heresy, um, especially against two men, one called Praxius and the other one called Noetus, who were the main teachers of that heresy. And he said, that's not the case, and so on. Now, they, uh, just to have an idea, these guys were called the uh, heresiarch, the chief heretics. So not a, t- a term that you want to put upon himself. And Tertullian fought against them in this teaching that somehow the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are the same person and they don't exist as three separate persons in the Godhead. Um, but he didn't just write against uh, heretics. He also s- de- developed positive doctrine as he, as he taught. And um, we're going to look at, at three of them that are very important for us today. Now, I want to make a distinction. There's, some, there's the formulation of truth and the creation of truth. Can you make that distinction you had? The formulation of truth and the creation of truth? Steve, are you shaking your head yes? Can you make that distinction aloud? Exactly, exactly. So that's what Tertullian is doing. He's formulating the truth that's in the scriptures. The, 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 the church all, from the New Testament believed that there's three, three, there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and there was one God, and the three were God, and the one was God. The church had a hard time explaining that. The church had a time formulating that, but never denied it. They were good at looking at versions they're good at looking at explanations and say, no, that's not quite it. No, that, that's not quite it. No, that's not quite it. Tertullian provided an actual positive explanation of these things. Explanation that we still use today to describe God himself. You know, Augustine is better known as the Latin theologian, but Augustine could not have done his work if Tertullian had come before him. Providentially, you know, God could do whatever. But in history, Augustine was able to talk about the sovereign grace of God in salvation because Tertullian talked about traditionism. Now, so, come on, Tito, we're already, it's the first day back. <laughs> we're still exhausted from having COVID. We're, you know, it's not, the oxygen levels haven't gotten up there to the brain yet. All these, well... We did study it a couple months ago, what traditionism was in, when we were looking at the, the doctrine of man in Sunday school. But traditionism teaches that the soul of man is given to him 
along with his body from his parents and not specially created by God at the moment of conception. So the idea that we get our bodies and souls from our parents, from mom and dad. That, that's how God created us and how that God makes us have a soul and a body. The rightness or wrongness of this doctrine is not important for the moment. What's important is why Tertullian was teaching that. He was teaching that in order to defend the doctrine of original sin. He was teaching that in order to, to, to show from the scriptures, give us vocabulary to talk about the fact that we are, all have a sinful nature. And that apart from the gracious work of God from the outside, we can come to him. So you can start seeing how Augustine built on that, who is, who is the, the forefather, the, the church father of grace, as, as it were. So you see there that he gave us words, vocabulary, to be able to talk about this truth that we were conceived in sin. That is, that we have a sinful nature, and that permeates everything that we, we do. The second thing that he taught that was of great consequence, it was regarding the divinity of Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, now, to appreciate this, we must understand that the church did not have, at this time, any formulated doctrine of these important truths. They believed what the Bible said, but they didn't quite know how to talk about it. That was being developed as they went to. And these are, they're, these are deep, profound, important uh, ideas, so they wanted to make sure they got it right. Because they, they had this they weren't thinking just about the now. They had this generational view. What we do now will have impact for generations uh, to come. So the question was, how can God be both three and one? That's what they're trying to... How do we explain that? God is both three and one. Now, if God is three, and we leave it that, then it would seem that Christianity is just another form of polytheism, another form of polypaganism. If God is just one, then Christ cannot be God. So how do we solve that problem? And Tertullian comes along and gave us the terminology to be able to talk about that. He's the one that uh, first used the word Trinity to refer to God. He's the first one to use the word person to refer to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's the first one to use the word substance or essence to talk about, again, I'm going to commit a heresy right now, to talk about what God is made of. Because you know, God is not made of, but we can't have to use language to talk about God. Uh, say that uh, even though they have three different persons, they're all the same substance, the same essence. There's no difference in character, in glory, in essence in them. And Tertullian is the one that gave us the language to be able to talk about that kind of stuff there. And that's really the third thing that he gave us, the development of a theological vocabulary. Years before, uh, actually about a hundred years before, the Eastern Church had to struggle with it. The Eastern Church, and uh, some Andrew will talk a little bit about that next time, had all kinds of controversies on the identity of Christ, on the identity of, of, of who God was, how to describe God, and so on. That was settled in the Western Church because of Tertullian's uh, great work there. And while, no, so while the storms of controversy tore the Eastern Church apart over these difficult doctrines, the West went on its quiet way, really undisturbed by the Trinitarian controversies that were going on in the East that didn't get settled till 325, at least theologically settled till 325 AD in the Council of Nicaea. And this thoroughly Trinitarian thinking influenced Calvin greatly. Everything about Calvin is triune. 
He, he sees the God operating as a trinity. He sees that God has a trinity. He couches a lot of that in Tertullian's work. Any questions? Andrew. Uh, you said he introduced the language of trinity, substance, essence. What else did you say? Person. Person. The actual word person was first used. So the actual word trinity, the actual word substance. Essence is developed in the East. The, the West used the word substance to refer to the same thing. Any other questions before we continue? Now, Tertullian is a man, just like we are. So he had problems as well. And it's important when we talk about these heroes of the faith that we portray them as they were. Not a, we're not seeking hagiographies. We're not trying to make them holier than they are. The Bible itself doesn't, doesn't give us heroes other than Jesus Christ who are perfect, right? Uh, talk about who, a great hero of our faith is Abraham. And the Bible tells us a bunch of good stuff about Abraham, but he also tells us some stuff that's not that great. And that's true of Tertullian as, way, as well. Uh, the last years of Tertullian were spent as a member of a sect, a bit of a cult, called the Montanists. So he bought into this idea of Montanism. And the Montanists started a movement within the church which emphasized the mystical and subjective. And um, with, with, with what they call spiritual manifestation. So in essence, they were very similar to the Pentecostal charismatic movement of today. That's what the Montanists were. A lot of emphasis on prophecy and a lot of emphasis on women leadership. Women being the prophetesses and the preachers of that movement. They were ascetic, ascetic in, in character, which means that they, they were against worldliness and they denied the body, but more of an outward thing. Uh, they held to subjective revelations through the Spirit, so like uh, God giving them messages and prophecies, and when they spoke in tongues, those were revelations from the Lord. And then many, many students of church history debate the question why Tertullian joined that sect. Why such an intelligent man joined that sect? Uh, the, the most, uh, I think, the most plausible reason is that Tertullian was a guy that was really against worldliness and ungodliness. And the Montanists provided this, what he thought, winsome environment in which you can withdraw from the world, deny yourself, deny the flesh in order to produce godliness. That's the best explanation that uh, I've seen over there, but he spent the last, the scene in the books, he spent the last years of his life and died as a member of this sect. Augustine liked him so much that he uh, says that Tertullian returned to the church before his death, but there's no evidence of that other than that one mentioned by uh, Augustine. So it is said, the sad ending to a gifted man, and we leave judgment to the Lord to see uh, what happened to him. Uh, but it's important for us to remember that the greatest men in this world of sin have their faults. And that our trust is not in men, but in the Lord. So let's not put people in pedestals. Because pedestal people always fail us. Because they're not supposed to be in, in pedestals. Now, his membership with the uh, Montanists is, however, an abiding warning uh, that such movements as Montanism and, Pente- and Pentecostalism rush into the church as a mighty wind 
to fill a spiritual vacuum created by world conformity and dead orthodoxy, though that's a contradiction in terms. If you're orthodox, you're not going to be dead. But the idea that belief without life, theological accuracy without life, invites these, uh, uh, these wrong movements. So it's important that we learn from history and be wise, that we grab on to the good things that Tertullian taught us, and that we let that be a life-giving thing instead of just some other thing that we put in our heads and yet has not, doesn't make any difference in the way that we live in this world. Any questions as we finish today, this morning? All right, so let's pray. Father, thank you for the cloud of witnesses gone before us. We thank you that there were people just like us trusting Christ for their salvation. Uh, we pray that you'd use us in a mighty way. We pray that we would be willing to give of ourselves for the furtherance of your church. And we thank you that your son is going to build his church. And even the gates of hell will prevail against it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.